Hello and welcome to the Combat Stress 100 podcast. My name is Tom Fox. To commemorate 100 years of Combat Stress, in 2019 the charity worked with the UK reminiscence charity Age Exchange to travel the length and breadth of the UK recording interviews with veterans who've been treated by Combat Stress. They called the project Combat Stress 100. Funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, the charity's brought together veterans to tell their powerful stories, often for the first time in public. In this episode, we're going to hear from veterans who sustained moral injuries, the psychological aftermath of witnessing or failing to prevent acts that go against what we believe is right. In traumatic or unusually stressful circumstances such as war, a person may be involved in, witness or be unable to prevent events or actions that contradict their own deeply held moral beliefs. Sometimes this is due to higher operational needs, objectives, orders or priorities. It's under these circumstances that a moral injury can occur. First though, Dr Dominic Murphy, Head of Research at Combat Stress, tells us in more detail what moral injury is and the research that's being undertaken to identify effective treatment for veterans with moral injuries. Now, moral injury has been defined as an event where someone has seen, witnessed, or done something that breaches their moral or ethical code. Examples of this may be feeling as if they uh, did not act in a way they thought they should have done. For example, not seeing an IED whilst driving in a convoy, and feeling that they'd let themselves or their team down. And it's important to note that this is about their perception of an event, rather than what actually happened. And this is because sometimes we can be very hard on ourselves. But whilst a moral injury is not a mental illness, People who have them are often experience strong feelings of shame, guilt, or anger. And we know that for, for many, moral injuries can occur alongside symptoms of PTSD and depression. Moral injuries range in complexity and diversity. And this is a difficult topic to discuss. This is about thinking about our core kind of moral beliefs and value systems. It's especially difficult when you're thinking that often people on deployment may be in, in situations where they're, they're unable to or felt powerless to act. Uh, to intervene with what they were witnessing. Now, an example of this is a client that I worked with who was an officer serving in Afghanistan. He was leading his convoy and the way forward was blocked by debris in the road. And he had to make a spur-on-the-moment decision to change route and take the convoy in a new direction. Driving along this new route, they came under attack and were hit by an IED. And unfortunately, a member of his team was killed. Now, the officer reported to me that he felt he'd failed his team and his troops under his command. And this violated his moral code. This code was, you know, for him, the most important thing was the welfare of his soldiers and bringing them home safely. He put this above everything else, and he felt that this had been compromised. So another example of a moral injury, maybe witnessing something that violates someone's moral code. You uh, told me about um, when they were on operation in Kosovo, and they'd been ordered not to give food to the hungry and starving children around them when they were travelling on the local roads. And this veteran told me how this violated their moral code. They wanted to do good. They wanted to help and prevent suffering. They felt unable to, and because of the kind of the limits put upon the operational limits put upon them, and their kind of the orders, and this has left with them a deep sense of unfair sense that they could have done something different. Now, for combat stress and for veterans, exploring the issues around moral injury is important. Ultimately, what we know is moral injury is heavily associated with PTSD. We also know that from our own research and from our NATO colleagues and others working in this field that. You know, the gold standard treatments for most who are suffering from PTSD work really well. But less is known about how to treat those who have PTSD that might also include a moral injury. Now, whilst there is not much evidence for how to treat moral injury, at present, it seems the most effective ways are to provide support 
and try to help people make sense of their experiences and uh, see them from different perspectives from the experience they've had. However, it's really important for combat stress and hopefully for the wider veteran community to continue to explore these issues around moral injury to better understand how to treat those in our care. This is because we now realise that moral injury is far more prevalent than we've realised. We'd originally thought that moral injury was mainly prevalent in the most extreme cases of PTSD or complex PTSD. But actually our research, and that conducted by other organisations, and the treatment we offer to veterans, have shown that it's far more prevalent than we first thought. Now with veterans saying that the events have left them with strong feelings of shame, guilt and anger, that these have gone on to cause great difficulties in later life. Given this impact, as well as the high prevalence of moral injury, we, we are determined to find the best way to support veterans. To achieve this, Combat Stress are collaborating with King's College London to develop a new treatment for moral injury, which is going to be based on what veterans have told us from their experiences, or, and importantly, will tailor it to those individual needs. This piece of research has kindly been funded by the Force in Mind Trust, and it's due to start later this year. We're very excited. And our aim by the end of this project is to be in the best position to treat veterans who have experienced moral injury with the latest evidence-based support. It's, it was an experience. Sometimes you saw people who hated you. Sometimes you saw people who would look at you with so much hate that would make your stomach clench because you'd think, God, you really would just destroy me if you could. And then you get people that would come out of their homes or shops and like a woman shut her door in a shop. And I thought, what the hell's going on? And it was a little local shop we would go to. And she held both my hands and thanked me for being there. Just thanked us for keeping her safe and told us that she slept better because she knew we were there. And I kind of related a lot to what she said because I remember my time in Ireland when I lived there and obviously with the terrorists and all that, knowing the police and army were there, it did make you sleep better, you know. And I had one incident when there was a little kid. Are you all right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry, don't, that's over my don't feel. Don't say anything you don't feel you want to say. No, you? no, no, that's cool. No, this little kid, he was starving. He'd lost his family. Well, you weren't allowed to do anything, feed him or or anything. I couldn't bear it. I'll probably get into trouble for even saying this now, but I used to chuck my lunchbox out the window so we could have it. Because I knew where I was going, I'd get fed. But this was a poor little bugger. I look at him and he just reminded me of me when I lived in Ireland. That desperate look, that empty look he had in his eyes. That he seemed some terrible stuff. I thought, would anyone know if I took this kid home, took him back? I mean, I know he's not a puppy, he's not a dog or anything, and I don't, I don't suggest that he was, but I wanted to take him out of there, bring him home so I could look after him, show him what life's like outside. Because wherever you were, there wasn't a building you could see that didn't have a hole in it from bullets and all sorts. And I know that we lad has watched his entire family be slaughtered. And there he is, standing on a roadside, begging for food and anything. That was, that heart broke, broke me up. I carried me up even now. <laughs> on 13th of May in 1994, there was a, an under-vehicle booby trap explosion in a town called Lurgan. And we were de deployed in Lurgan at the time. And uh, we actually heard the explosion. 
and deployed to it. And when we got there, there was a car that exploded and it drifted across the road and crashed into a wall. And when, when we arrived at the, the incident, the passenger door was opening and banging against the wall. And uh, as it turned out, it was a guy we knew. We called him Fred Anthony, and his official title was he was a, cl- a cleaner in Lurgan Police Station. But he was a lovely man. But he did a bit of everything, you know. He hoovered police cars out and things like this. He's just an handyman, really, but he's a lovely man. And that attacked him. Uh, but he had his family in the car. And his wife was really badly burned, cradling cradling the daughter in, in, in the back of the car. And we pulled the car away from the wall to get the daughter out. The wife was really badly burned. Uh, and Fred was cut in half. But the overriding memory memory for me of that was his daughter's slippers had been blown out the back of the car and were in the road and it was like somebody had sat in there. It, 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 was, it was staggering to see that they could land like that, you know. Anyway, uh, the, the incident went on, but what really did me was the car he was driving, it was a blue Skoda Estelle. I had actually sold him it. Because old Freddie didn't earn a lot, you know, and I was getting a newer car and I offered him it and I sold him it. And I always wondered, was it for me or was it for him? And of course, we'll never know. Will we? uh, Makes you stand still for a minute and just reflect. It, mainly when children have been hurt, like out in Sierra Leone, I was involved with the, uh, the West Side Boys when they used to get cracked up and drugged up and drunk and, and they'd go out and cut kids' hands and, and and feet off. And the aftermath of that was pretty significant. And, and again, down in Angola, you know, uh, the, 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 the kids coming in with mind strikes, you know, with legs missing and things like that was, was quite quite naughty. The Argentinians as well, they were, they were not that good. You know, we weren't perfect, but they, they'd done some naughty things as well, you know, like putting their big... Uh, artillery guns right next to the hospital you know it's not in the Geneva Convention you, mm. you, it's not part of it uh, but there was some you know losing friends uh, I lost my nephew in Iraq as well he was killed in a helicopter accident and that was very very difficult because he wasn't special forces but it was a special forces mission and they closed ranks well of course I had clearance as a major to, to get the information in the, in the closed ranks. So I knew there was something wrong and it took me four years to find out what had actually happened. And that was significant for me because I love the MOD and I'm part of it. And when they turn against you uh, in closed ranks, I found it quite quite dishonourable towards what I'd given, given mm-hmm. 42 years service. Yeah. And when something goes wrong, I always thought I'd be looked after. And uh, to try and blame, uh, you know, someone who's dead for contributing towards their own death when actually it was a genuine accident. It was quite difficult to stomach. I found that mm. quite challenging. Huh? Mm. We were getting flown up and we saw some sights up there and uh, what I didn't realise was the way, the, the, way the, the cleansing, the ethnic cleansing, I saw some of that, the aftermath of that. You know, driving through, uh, you may have to cut some of this because it's quite... Candid, and I will be quite graphic. You know, we're driving through Banyaluka one day, and Banyaluka was a bit like a bandit town. We had our own road round it, 
because it got quite cheeky going through there. And we got flagged down by local population. And there's about eight houses in a row. And one house, the Serbs had gone in and the Serbs didn't like those people. So they, they put both children on the washing line and hung them and set fire to them. And they put the young lady, the mother, they had raped her and interfered with her. Uh, she was naked and they'd slit her from from here up to here and put her on the washing line and let her drip dry. So we were the first troops there and the police wanted to come in and, and deal with it. But actually this was a you know, this was a war crime. You know, this was against the civilian population. Mm-hmm. And when we reported it in, no one no one wanted to know about it. Three months after joining, uh, in on the 12th of December 1973, uh, my class at Dartmouth, there were, I think, about 12 or 13 of us, we were doing what's called a JOAC, Junior Officers Air Acquaint course. And this was to um, learn what it's like to um, be in fixed-wing aircraft and, and, and rotary-wing helicopters. Um, Dartmouth had a WASP heli- helicopter, very similar to a, a scout in the Army. Uh, and the, there was also a spare um, WASP helicopter from HMS Eskimo, which was a tribal-class frigate, and, and she, I think she was in, in, in dock, and so this was also, also available. Um, we were basically taking off and, and landing and, and going trips around Dartmoor, that was the idea. I had just got into, um, I think it was the Dartmouth WASP, into the rear left seats, put my bone dome on, uh, and the first thing I heard was crash, crash, crash. Um, couldn't speak because we couldn't transmit, but it was just, just listening. And it turned out that the other aircraft had, had fallen out of, the, out, of the, out of the sky behind us. Our pilot wanted to um, get over and have a look at it, so he was allowed to take off, and we went back about a thousand yards uh, behind us, about half a mile, half a nautical mile <laughs> behind us, uh, and looked down on this burning mass of stuff, horrible, it was, just couldn't really recognise it. And there were three or four, three or four other uh, things around it, as well as the sort of central mess. Uh, we went back, landed, we all leapt out. Um, one of the uh, airman aircraftsmen um, handlers uh, had a pickup truck, and he said, right, everybody get some fire extinguishers and jump into the back of the truck. So we all did that, leg, legged it round the, round the hangar, finding um, extinguishers, um, got onto the back of his truck, went round over the fields, round the lanes, and then over the field out to the, where it was. And we were basically um, pushing out the fires of the, 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 the helicopter itself. And uh, what were my friends? Three of my friends and the pilot. Um, I only think I saw... It's really hard to remember because I think my brain has protected, protected my, uh, myself by actually... I know what happened um, and I have a memory of what happened, but I can't, I'm glad I can't visualise what I remember that I saw, if that makes sense. Um, and um, one of the chaps was the person I was mentioning earlier who we used to help out in, in the... Uh, in the runs up the College Hill. 
He was fairly fairly stocky, well built. Um, uh, one of the other chaps, well, I won't mention their names. I don't think, don't think that's relevant. Was quite sort of lanky. Uh, and my mate that I, we were in the same cabin together, Sixworth cabin together. Um, he was none of those things, and I think the, the pilot was quite quite small. So the only way I could recognise which was my mate was that he wasn't stocky and he wasn't lanky and he wasn't the little one, um, which was interesting. Because only, um, you know, we were we'd known each other for three months, and we were we were all pals. Um, and that we got on with what was needed to be done at the time. Um, I think it started to register as once the fire brigade arrived, and we we were all um, loaded up into a minivan, into a minibus, went back to the college. And gradually, as we got closer and closer to through the college gates, through through the, the division doors, and then through my uh, into my cabin, uh, I then learned that Ben just started crying. And I remember a colleague also in the in, in the cabin. He I can't remember if it was at the time or later on, but he, he criticised the fact that I'd been crying. Um, but I can understand that he 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 hadn't been there, and it was just my just my brain doing the right thing it's doing what uh, doing what human human uh, brains do at present combat stress treats many veterans each year that have PTSD and many of those will also have had moral injuries now we're doing our best and we know that the majority of veterans do really well from these treatments and they continue to do well after we've we finished but we also know that for some, they need a little bit of extra support, and that's what we're working to develop right now. But I just want to reassure people that moral injuries are treatable. Uh, and while some are unpleasant, we know that good evidence-based treatments are effective and help people overcome some of these difficulties and challenges. I know that some of you listening to this will be affected by what you heard. Whether you're a veteran or a friend or relative of a veteran, the Combat Stress 24-Hour Helpline is there for you. Combat Stress is a charity that is heavily dependent on public donations. If you can help, please text PTSD5 to 70004 to donate £5. Text cost your standard network rate plus your £5 donation. Combat Stress will receive 100% of your donation. Please obtain the bill payers' permission before you text. The customer care line is 01372-587-153. Charity number 206-002. Next time on the Combat Stress 100 podcast, the final episode, we'll be looking at the impact veterans' PTSD has on their families. We're going to hear from the partners and children of veterans who've been supported by Combat Stress. We'll also hear about the support available to families from the charity. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.